This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Today's episode of Lions of Liberty is brought to you by MathBot.com. MathBot.com is a fun little game that fills a serious hole that the public and even the private schools miss, and that is knowledge of programming and the math behind programming. MathBot.com gives parents a much-needed tool to make sure their children don't fall behind in this new information age. Software is eating the world, and those who don't know how to code will be left behind as more and more jobs become automated. MathBot.com gives kids and even adults like me, the knowledge needed to thrive in this new world. MathBot may just seem like a fun and simple game, but behind the scenes it uses the same method Julius Caesar, Isaac Newton, Einstein, and everyone else were all taught math before the state got its greasy hands into education. This method goes all the way back to classical Greece, the dawn of civilization. MathBot will gradually upload the math and logical skills needed to understand programming into the mind of any player. It's said that the pen is mightier than the sword, but but now code is even mightier than the pen. So become mighty and learn to code over at mathbot.com. Now we can arm and train Nazis. It is now legalized again. And that's exactly what the Trump government is doing over there. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here's your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Claire. friends and welcome back to another edition of the flagship lions of liberty podcast here at lions of liberty we are still and always will be the original libertarian variety show where we bring you three unique and fun and exciting shots of liberty every week starting with me every single monday where i bring you amazing interviews like the one you're going to hear today with a very familiar name someone you have heard on this show several times before and if you think you get a lot of information from today's interview you haven't even seen the tip of the iceberg because as we go into so many extra topics in our bonus section exclusively for members of the Lions of Liberty Pride, our supporters on Patreon. To learn more about that, head over to patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty. As little as five bucks a month, you get access to all of our exclusive bonus audio content. We also just did a conspiracy corner the other week on Bigfoot. And we've got a very special Patreon-only libertarians in living rooms drinking liquor coming for you towards the end of this month. That will be sort of an ask-me-anything of the whole Lions of Liberty crew as we chuggle away on our booze. So, so much for you behind the old paywall. And of course, here in front of it, not only do you get me every Monday, but of course you get Brian McWilliams every Wednesday with your weekly shot of comedy, culture, and liberty on Electric Liberty Land. And by shot, sometimes I mean many shots based on how drunk Brian often is, but like... Like some have said, he is one of the best, if not the best, drunk libertarian podcaster in the business. Take that one to the bank. And of course, every Friday we wrap things up with John Odermatt's hard-hitting look at the broken criminal justice system 
on Felony Friday. We have such a great variety of shows here that we're always excited to tell you to hit that subscribe button so you don't miss a damn thing. For today's show notes, which you may very well need because we cover a lot of information, I want you to head over to lionsofliberty.com slash 385. This is the 385th edition of this podcast. Let's get to it. All right, my guest today is uh, somewhat of a semi-regular guest on the show. He is the author of Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan. He is the editorial director of Antiwar.com, the managing director of the Libertarian Institute. He is the host of Antiwar Radio on KPFK every Sunday here in Los Angeles. And of course, he hosts The Scott Horton Show, featuring literally thousands of interviews on foreign policy. Very pleased to welcome back Scott Horton. Scott? Are you ready to roar? Yeah. How are you doing, Mark? I'm doing great, man. How are things? Not so bad at all. Not so bad at all. So uh, before I get into today's topic, I actually wanted to ask you about something I've been seeing lately on the Twitter, in the Twitterverse primarily, and that is this push for you to have a debate with Ben Shapiro on the subject of U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East. I know uh, Gene Epstein has been sending some semi-snarky tweets uh, of invitation out to him. He's offered to host it at the Soho Forum, and um, I'm just kind of curious. Uh, obviously, I know you'd be willing to debate. You're willing to debate anyone uh, on, at any time on this stuff, but I'm curious. It seems that it's been pretty silent uh, from the Shapiro side of things. So do you think there's any chance that this debate happens? Well, I really don't know. I mean, people had said to me that I should debate him. And when Gene asked me, is there someone I should debate about foreign policy? I said, well, people are always suggesting that I debate Ben Shapiro. But I think, unfortunately, it kind of came out as like this giant like battle of Thunderdome kind of thing, like an immediate like throw down a gauntlet kind of a challenge where instead of calling him or emailing him and just inviting him to the debate, and I think this was unintentional as far as its effect goes, but instead Gene challenged him in a way on Twitter where it was more like a big dare, you know, which I think is probably why he never responded at all and probably won't respond. Because now it's like a bunch of people teasing him and mocking him and saying, oh, well, donate to charity if only you're man enough to show up at this thing or whatever. Right, and he right. never had a chance to say, yeah, sure, I'll debate him. You know what I mean? Like it was an insult before it was actually an invitation. Right. So I don't know the guy and I know very little about him, honestly. I pay very little attention to him. I mean, I know who he is obviously. But um, I thought, well, let's just go up there and talk about the facts, right? I didn't want it to be like a this big uh, clash of personalities type, you know, showmanship kind of thing. Because, and you know me, that's not what I do. I mean, I would debate if I was invited to debate, but I never am. But I don't interview the bad guys and fight with them on my show. Right. You know, I just want you guys to read Gareth Porter. So I just interviewed Gareth Porter over and over again so that you understand what he's trying to teach you. That's it. You know what I mean? I'm not really, I don't really try to do that kind of deal. So I guess I expect now that the thing will never happen, but I was happy to debate the guy in good faith and not call him any names or make it like some kind of overt challenge to his, you know, whatever. Right. I, I, don't, I don't know where it first came from, the idea. I do believe Gene... I did believe he emailed him prior, but I think once maybe libertarians got hold of it and started talking about it, then I think what you're saying sort of happened. And then you know how libertarians can be when uh, they get excited about something. Yeah. Well, I, 
I mean, I think he like challenged him. He like wrote publicly on Twitter. I saw the tweet where it was like, you know, the invitation was as a tweet and then, you know, email me with his name and phone number there. But it was like, that's a pretty, you know, kind of uh, whatever, overtly challenging way to do it. Right. When it could have been, I mean, if we're really trying to get him, then, hey, let's approach him with all due respect. Right. We're not trying to have him on to like make an example out of him or something. Right. We have him on there because presumably he's if, if anybody on the right is capable of of, you know, sticking to their point in the face of what I have to say then people give him the credit for that, right? It, you know, as far as his consistency and his knowledge on his point of view and that kind of thing, he, is, he was invited because he's presumed to be a formidable opponent, which is, you know, um, you know, so hopefully we're meeting. In fact, as far as like who's famous and has contracts and followers and whatever, he's a far more successful type of a personality than I am as far as that goes, so. Sure. It's a, it's a fair point to how I think we should be approaching things in general. Anytime someone gets the impression that they're being asked to come do something or participate in a conversation of some kind, and it comes across that the point is to show how stupid they are, it's not likely they'll really be that interested in it. Now, I don't know if he would respond if the uh, if the invitation was sent any differently. Quite quite right. possibly not. Uh, right. Although it is somewhat ironic because he actually challenged uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez to a debate in the exact same manner, and then his his uh, followers sort of got hyped up and are kind of doing the same thing the libertarians have been doing on Twitter. Yeah, so maybe well, we're all it, guilty. <laughs> this is kind of why I'm glad I quit Twitter because yeah. you know I um it's You're probably uh, a lot a lot more sane now just by simply not being on Twitter anymore. Yeah, and, and I mean, when I think about the number of minutes that would have been sunk into this whole controversy, like I saw one meme in my little Reddit group about it. I spent a total of a minute and a half on this. I, I actually emailed Gene and said, hey, you know, um, maybe go at him a little bit easier and try to get him in the debate. And then we'll just see who has the facts on their side kind of thing, And which is the, is the spirit of the debate. And I don't mean to slam Gene. Like I say, I think... I think it came across as a lot more kind of as a double dog dare than he meant it to in the first place. But then like you're saying, yeah, the reaction was like, well, what, I don't owe you anything kind of deal. Right. So right. why would, why would Shapiro subject himself to something where he's being cast in that light in the first place or being put on the spot in that way, you know? a great point and i think uh, anybody out there who really wants to hear that debate happen someday or a debate like that should kind of take uh, take heed of those words about how to approach things if you actually want to see the debate or if you just want to kind of you know be sort of touting your libertarian manhood on twitter and hey if anybody you know out there knows the guy then tell him i'm happy to debate him in good faith i wasn't trying to like put him on a spot in a way and make a jerk out of him i i'm perfectly happy to state my case about the causes and effects of the terror wars. And I think that what I have to say will stand. I'm not worried about that, you know? Certainly. Well, maybe in some way, shape or form, it can happen down the road. Uh, but moving on to uh, what I wanted to tackle a bit today. And, uh, you know, a few weeks ago, we were having one of our roundtable discussions and somehow, some way, the topic of neo-Nazis in the Ukraine came up. And I had, I had heard, sort of heard something about it before. I didn't know too much on the topic, but I did have a feeling who would know something about the topic. And uh, of course, you came to mind. So uh, I, I do want to dig into it a little bit. I'm not sure the best place to start. It might really be the best place to start 
with with sort of the current history of the Russia Ukraine conflict, uh, maybe you know just in the last four years or so of this certain sort of current iteration of things, could you give us a little background on I guess what you might call the the tensions? I guess is one way to put it. There, it is a big complicated mess, and yeah, there's some Nazis in it. Um, but um, you know, I think the best thing to do is start with the fall of the Soviet Union. So this was Russia's essentially it was Russia's communist empire, right, run out of the Kremlin, and you know, it wasn't in name, it was not Russia first, but it was, you know, pretty much it was Russia's empire, the Soviet Union, the USSR, and it dissolved. It was the miracle of miracles that this thing just basically ceased to exist. And the Russian army pulled back a thousand miles, 2000 miles to the east and just stopped occupying all of Eastern Europe from halfway across Germany. And they went all the way back uh, to their borders. And then in the end, they even let go, not just the Warsaw Pact, communist dominated countries, but even the so-called Soviet republics, meaning the Baltic states, Belarus and Ukraine. And I don't know if any of the stands counted as the republics. I forget exactly. Um, But these were the countries who were considered the core of the USSR. And in fact, at the time, President George H.W. Bush tried to prevent the breakup, the final breakup of the USSR. They wanted to see the rest of Eastern Ukraine liberated and they wanted to see communism destroyed, but they wanted the structure of Russian dominance over the Baltics, Belarus, and Ukraine to stay because they feared what would happen as a result. And George H.W. Bush actually went to Kiev, Ukraine, and warned against the passions of nationalist resentment that could make matters worse here and that we should not give in to them. And William Sapphire, the neoconservative writer for the New York Times, famously dubbed this the Chicken Kiev speech, where, you know, frankly, faced with the complete demise of the Soviet Union, George Bush Sr. tried to stop it. Um, you know, to that, that, that in and of itself is just mind blowing. It is. It is. It's crazy, especially considering how much he was just hailed uh, upon his death as, as, as sort of a uh, you know great American Cold Warrior or what have you. I mean, right, right. And so, but at the same time, though, he had an important point there about the nationalist passions of some Ukrainians and how troublesome that could be in terms of their relationship with Russia, and in essence, just how far east they were of any of America's real national interests, and so. You guys are going to be on your own, and this is a fight I don't think you want to pick, is basically what Bush Sr. was warning the Ukrainian right then, if that makes sense. Okay, but so then comes this the big promise that it was a major part of Gorbachev's agreement to dissolve the USSR was George Bush Sr. and James Baker, his Secretary of State's promise that NATO would not expand one inch east of Germany, that um, the Soviets would allow Germany to be reunited. And this was part of their entire withdrawal from Eastern Europe. They would allow the reunification of Germany under, obviously, you know, Western dominance. And... um, But the Americans promised that they would not expand the NATO alliance east at all. But then Bill Clinton threw that promise away and they kind of, you know, rudely said that, hey, you didn't get it in writing. And so this promise, this assurance, this all important assurance is 
not worth uh, the paper it didn't print it on. Is that is that pretty dangerous uh, overall? Obviously, just about everything presidents do, foreign policy wise, is dangerous. But you know, when a president basically unilateral unilaterally goes against a prior deal, a prior agreement, I mean, that that kind of sends a frightening message to other countries abroad. That you know, even if we tell you we're not going to bomb you or do this and that, uh, in four years, some other guy might do it anyway. So don't don't right. feel too comfy. I mean, we're seeing this happen right now with Trump uh, scotching the the uh, Iran nuclear deal. You know, and and all the consequences, you know, that will be coming from that. Um, but so in this case, they went ahead and they integrated Poland and they integrated Hungary. And I forget, you know, down the list, you know, uh, sequentially there chronologically. But starting in 1996, they started bringing in all these former Warsaw Pact countries and, you know, slowly started moving American forces there. And this is, you know, NATO is not a social club. I think to Madeleine Albright, it's a social club, but it is a war treaty, right? It is a mutual security pact that says if any one nation in the, inside this treaty is attacked, the other nations are obligated to defend it, right? Just like, you know, New York is bound to defend Virginia. If France invades Virginia, the rest of the states in the union or we will come to the common defense here, right? It's it's a federal union like that, in a sense, on a national security basis for Western Europe. I mean, it's called, NATO stands for the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. The purpose when they created it, they said, was to keep the Soviet Union out of Western Europe. Now they're expanding this NATO alliance east. And into the George Bush years, they expanded it all the way up to Russia's borders and incorporated uh, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia, the Baltic states, and started talking about bringing in Ukraine and what we used to call or still call, I guess, former Soviet Georgia, which is there uh, south of the Caucasus Mountains in the space between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea there. And if I lost you a little bit with that, that just goes to show how far east we are talking about of anything that is actually America's national interests by far. Um, this is way outside of America's domain, unless you count the entire planet earth as America's backyard. And, and by the way, nothing is Russia's backyard, but everything is America's backyard. That does seem to be, to be the general, uh, philosophy when it comes to these things, uh, whether it's Crimea or what have you, whenever Russia makes a small move into a neighboring country, and I'm certainly not defending those actions one way or another, I don't know enough about them to do so, Or, but um, you know, compared to the types of things that the United States routinely does around the world, uh, it really is quite hypocritical. Yeah, absolutely. And we're about to get to those things, uh, Crimea and all that, and, and none of those things are great. Um, but uh, their intervention in Ukraine, but certainly they are in reaction to American provocations and American intervention very far from home. The same thing is in the case of uh, Georgia in 2008 with that small war there. And then you might remember this from the George Bush years, what was called the, well, and it started in the Clinton years, it's called the color-coded revolutions. And yes. so it, the first one was in 2000 in the overthrow of Milosevic in, uh, or Milosevic, I guess, in Serbia. And then they did um, Edward Shevardnadze, who had been the foreign minister under Gorbachev and was one of the heroes of the destruction of the Soviet Union 
uh, and had become the president of Georgia, he was deposed and replaced by an American puppet named Mikhail Shakashvili. And to be clear, these are all, uh, would you say these are all essentially U.S.-backed regime changes under the sort of guise of an organic revolution? I mean, how much, I mean, I'm sure there's right. an element of actual revolution as well, but how, how much would you say is the U.S. directly intervening here as opposed to uh, how much of it was from an organic, you know, resentment or movement that came against the, those regimes? Yeah. Well, I mean, just think about it. even the way that, that you set up the question, it's undeniable, right? USA is the world empire. Some dissident group on the ground in a country like Georgia, how much relative power do they have to the U.S.? So when the U.S. is involved in something like that, and we do see that in Serbia, in Georgia, and then later in 2004 in the Orange Revolution in Ukraine, in the yellow or pink tulip revolution in Kyrgyzstan, and then they had an attempted revolution, the Cedar Revolution in uh, Lebanon that didn't go anywhere. You see the National Endowment for Democracy, uh, which is basically, I forgot whose who's famous quote it was that just said, well, the NED does what the CIA used to do in financing and fomenting these revolutions. And so the, the Orange Revolution in Ukraine in 2004, this was the Ukrainian template is what Justin Romando called it at antiwar.com for the color code of revolution. And basically what it is, is when the pro-Western side loses an election, then they're financed from outside, from the U.S. especially, to refuse to concede and to just stay out there and make demands and allege massive fraud and refuse to give in and go along with the democratic model of better luck next time. Um, and, and let your opponents win since they won the election kind of a deal. And to foment a crisis and to try to force the government out of power. And in 2004, they did this with this entire hoax about the KGB poisoning plot of the guy who actually lost the election. Um, but, you know, it was shown later that he was, you know, poisoned. It was... Uh, I guess the Austrian doctors later showed that he had basically poisoned himself and with a poison that could not have killed him, that the KGB or the FSB, it's now called, if it was a Russian plot to poison him, they would have used something that was certainly lethal. And in this case, all it did was create these weird tumors on his face. Was it sort of a, a self-poisoning false flag? Is that what you're saying? Did yeah, essentially. Although, you know what, it's, it's actually been since 2004, so I'm trying to think back of whether maybe one of the arguments was it was accidental exposure to something and they spun it this way um, or what. But it was, certainly was not an FSB poison plot the way that they portrayed it at the time. Um, and then but what happened was they canceled the election of this guy, uh, Yushchenko, and... Um, Oh, no, pardon me. I always screw this up. Of Yanukovych and put in Yushchenko. Well, Yushchenko ended up getting drummed out of power. And it was 10 years later, in 2014, under the Obama administration, is when they ran this same guy out of power. In 2010, he had won the election with uh, under uh, European monitors had verified that the election was free and fair, and his side had won. And the maiden revolution uh, that was sponsored by the United States government um, overthrew, and I can get into the details of that, but overthrew the same guy again who was this Russian-leaning president. And he had even agreed that we'll hold new and early elections in the fall. And um, 
But that was just the prelude to the final push that threw him out of power. We talk a lot about how the U.S. repeats history a lot uh, with a lot of its interventions and actions. Uh, This is a case where they are literally repeating the exact same history. Yeah, I'll get into the details of the coup and all that in a second and the new government. But I want to stick with sort of the overall view that the Americans are. And I skipped, you know, 1999, the Kosovo War, where they broke Kosovo off of Serbia over Russia's dead body. They were basically helpless to prevent it. They completely broke the so-called world law of the United Nations. that says you cannot start a war unless the U.N. Security Council agrees. And Bill Clinton said, forget that, we'll just use NATO and do it, his own little coalition of the willing. And by the way, that war was launched on totally false pretenses that the Serbs had killed more than 100,000 innocent civilians in this massive cleansing campaign of Kosovo, which never happened. The whole thing was just an absolute hoax. And all they ever found was low thousands of bodies, and they were all fighting-aged males from combat, apparently. There were no, you know, massive roundups and machine gunnings and whatever. And there's crazy war propaganda where the photographer climbs over a fence that's like around an electric box, you know, transformer box or something. And he takes a picture of the refugees on the other side of the chain link and it makes it look like they are trapped in a chain link, you know, cage or whatever. And the whole thing is just a hoax. And these are like, you know, AP photographers and whatever. I don't know whose who's finger I'm pointing at with that. I forget exactly. But you had um, um, uh, good old Roy, uh, Roy, what's his name from McClatchy? Roy Gutman, who's now working for The Intercept, uh, was manufacturing hoaxes around that in uh, 1999 to, to help support that war. And so, um, you know, just think about from, from the Bill Clinton years through the George W. Bush years and the Obama years, continuing to expand NATO, doing these color-coded revolutions, picking fights in Ukraine, moving troops into the Baltic states right on Russia's border, doing all of this. All of that is omitted from the common media narrative about Russia now. All you need to know about Russia now is that Vladimir Putin looks and sounds and is named the part of a perfect Bond villain. He's a bad guy. He's out to get you. He attacked America by denying Hillary Clinton her birthright as our overlord or whatever is the narrative there. And he's your enemy and he's trying to get you and he's trying to conquer all of Eastern Europe and he's trying to destabilize our faith in democracy and... And on and on and on and with all of these things. That's simple. It's just like with the Arab wars that we've talked about here. It's just like with um, World War II, as Robert Higgs said. I was reminded of this quote the other day um, where Robert Higgs talked about the Pearl Harbor attack and the case of historians truncating the antecedents. In other words, they never tell you what happened before the thing that happened happened. They just say, oh, my God, Russia invaded Crimea. And then you're supposed to have an emotional reaction like a little girl got kidnapped. Oh, no. How dare they do that? What a crisis. But you're never told why they would do such a thing. And what's the point of that anyway? Or any of these things. You're left with simply Russian aggression, Russian aggression. So um, that's the real context is that. The Soviets lost the Cold War. Not only did they lose the Cold War, they ceased to exist. Their communist empire dissolved. On Christmas Day, 1991, the red flag came down and the red, white, and blue Russian flag went up. It was over. 
and America became the unquestioned, unopposed superpower that is global hegemon, world empire, with all of the European powers as our, if not satellites, junior partners in our imperial project, and the same within the Far East with Japan and Korea. And then the game is, you know, the grand chessboard, right? How to dominate Central Asia. The big part of that is dominating Eastern Europe. If you read about and denying Eastern Europe and, you know, Southeastern Europe, their access to the Black Sea to the Russians. Um, If the Russians have the Sevastopol naval base there on the Crimean Peninsula, then there's some kind of regional power. Without it, they're nothing. It's their only warm water port all year round. And it's the home of the Black Sea Fleet since the days of the Articles of Confederation, before James Madison and George Washington even launched their Philadelphia coup d'etat in 1787, Catherine the Great bought the Crimean Peninsula from the Ottoman Turks in 1783. That's how long Russia owned Crimea. And yes, there was an ethnic cleansing campaign 240 years ago where they kicked all the Tatars out other than, you know, a minority, a small minority and moved in a lot of ethnic Russians. But we are talking about back in the days when there were still 13 states in the union, you know, they hadn't even added 14 yet. They hadn't split Vermont and New Hampshire yet. Right. When this was going on. Um, And so um, the only reason Ukraine owned Crimea at all is because Khrushchev, after Stalin died, was aided to power by Ukrainian factions inside the Communist Party. They took his side and helped him, you know, obtain the premiership. And so as a reward, he gave them Crimea. And they say drunkenly one night. He had a little too much vodka and just said, ah, just take Crimea. Thank you. You got it. Appreciate it. Exactly. And so, I mean, the deal was he was the general secretary of the Communist Party. Of the world or whatever, right? So, in other words, that's how sacred his decree is to you or me, too, is he was just some commie commissar who declared a thing one day, drunk or not. Um, The fact is, at the time, it didn't matter because, of course, Kiev and whoever, whoever's the mayor of Crimea and everyone else is answerable to the Kremlin. It was such a centralized system. It didn't matter. Right. It would be like giving Texas City to Louisiana. It would not make that much of a difference in the scheme of things. Right. Texas and Louisiana wouldn't go to war over that. We would just like probably think that that was weird. Right. But yeah, it it doesn't make a difference. They might get into a Twitter war at most. That's about it. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it would be it would be something. But under our federal union, it wouldn't matter much. That's all I'm trying to say. So but then after the fall of the Soviet Union, I mean, you got to keep the geography in mind here, right? The Crimean Peninsula sticks off the south coast of Ukraine, not of Russia. So there's, you know, shoreline there between Russia and the Crimean Peninsula there. Um, and yet it's ethnically almost entirely Russian other than the Tatars. And they had, you know, essentially autonomy since 1991, or, you know, no great interference in their affairs there. And the Russians kept their naval base under an agreement with the uh, government of Ukraine. And so there wasn't a problem. The status quo held. But then when America overthrew, certainly helped to overthrow the government in February of 2014, 
the second time in 10 years that they overthrew this same leader, the same elected president. This was also occasioned by laws outlawing or, or refusing, rescinding the recognition of Russian as an official second language in the country, as well as a letter signed by four former Ukrainian presidents saying now is the time for us to kick Russia out of the Sevastopol naval base down there on the Crimean Peninsula. And it was only then that the Russians then left their base. They didn't invade from Russia. They simply left their base and then put boots on the ground on every street corner, essentially, and consolidated and, and controlled and declared that they now own the Crimean Peninsula. No one was killed in the Russian invasion of Crimea in 2014. Not one person. And I saw shots were fired, two of them, in the air. And the Russians said to the Ukrainians, I'm telling you, pal, you better turn around and get the hell out of here before I have to aim lower. And then that was it. No one died in the whole thing. And so it was not great, but it was a direct reaction to American intervention and a, Amer a, a, a direct reaction to a direct American threat to Russia's vital interests. The Americans knew exactly what they were doing and the fire they were playing with there. It was, this is why it was that important for America to try to take Crimea away from Russia with this uh, coup in the first place. And they knew that there was a risk that the Russians would react badly, and then they sure as hell did. Hey, friends, I got to take a quick pause here to tell you about another great libertarian podcast out there. It's called Free Man Beyond the Wall, hosted by the artist formerly known as Mance Raider, now known simply by his real name of Pete Raymond. And I got to tell you, Pete is a machine. This guy brings you a new episode of his own every single Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and he has done some absolutely fantastic in-depth interviews. He's had on everybody from Ron Paul to Thaddeus Russell to Phil Labonte, the lead singer of All That Remains, a very diverse group of guests, not always libertarians. He also did a great show with a Washington, D.C., insider lobbyist revealing a lot of the dirt that goes on behind the scenes in DC. He has done so many interviews that I have just said, darn, I wish I did this one myself. So I really do want to highly recommend checking out Freeman Beyond the Wall. You can find it over at freemanbeyondthewall.com as well as iTunes, Stitcher, and all those fancy podcatchers out there. So it sounds like there are a lot of elements in the Ukraine that not only you know, they want to hold on to Crimea, but they there also seemed to be a push from what you're saying kind of against ethnic Russians in the area as well. Was that what prompted the Russian government to essentially step out? Was it to sort of just protect some of those people? Because they, they wanted to ban, you know, Russian as a language. I know a lot of the people in that area identify as Russian even when it's under Ukrainian control. So is that why right. the Russian military intervened? Was it to sort of protect those people? Obviously, it's also the political reason of protecting, you know, their own base yes. uh, politically, but... Yeah, I mean, and, and going back, of course, you know, you remember the Holodomor and the communist uh, Soviet Union's, you know, basically genocide against the people of Ukraine in the 1930s. That also included the resettlement of a lot of ethnic Russians into Ukraine. And so that's the reason why there's such a heavy ethnic Russian population in the East is a leftover artifact from the interwar years under Joseph Stalin there. And so, you know, that's, it, it helps to set the stage, you know, to help understand why there are such hard feelings on either side there. We have, you know, liberals and conservatives here who call themselves and call each other communists and fascists. 
But over there, it really has been the communists versus the fascists, the Stalinists versus the Nazis. And this kind of thing has been the history of their 20th century over there. So, you know, the divisions are about as stark as you can get. In fact, I should have mentioned about the Crimean Peninsula that in World War II, the Soviets lost somewhere between three and 400,000 men fighting the Germans to maintain, to retain control of the Crimean Peninsula. Between three and 400,000. So you think about what West Point means to the men of New York State or what the Alamo means to Texas. Uh, and now imagine that we had ever in an American war suffered hundreds of thousands of casualties to maintain one position in the war. That's what the Soviets um, faced in their war against the Nazis. So you figure just how married they are to the idea that the Crimean Peninsula belongs to them and forever it will. That's pretty much an unbreakable bond there in, in their minds. That's the kinds of things that the American state and I guess the American people think just might matter to us, but shouldn't matter to anyone else uh, when that's the kind of thing that they've gone through. But of course, you know, think about it from the Russians' point of view, what the Crimean Peninsula means to them. You know, what, what does it mean for something to be as important as the Alamo, but times 100,000? Like, I don't think, <laughs> there's not really a way to compare that, right? Like, you could take California away from the U.S. and it probably wouldn't hurt that bad. You know what I mean? So it's, it's very much a connected... Uh, to sort of national pride as well, in addition to all these political implications. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, but to the absolute nth thermonuclear degree, I guess, is what I'm trying to, to get across there, right? Yeah, in a way that we couldn't even probably understand. But anyway, so here's the deal, ma'am. The president of Ukraine was primarily the Russian leading guy, Yanukovych. Um, but he won the election fair and square in 2010, the Americans were trying to get him to sign a deal with the European Union to really, you know, in their eyes, take Ukraine away from Russia, to break it away from Russian dominance and have it, you know, move toward Germany and the EU and eventually NATO membership and all this stuff. So Yanukovych was going along with this until they had a big meeting. They were supposed to sign the new trade deal in the fall of 2013. And then when he showed up there, they told him there are new conditions on the deal. Now, you have to not have a trade deal with the Russians. If you're going to sign this deal, you can have no deal with them or this deal is off. And now we're going to demand all this new austerity measures and cutbacks in social spending. And you're going to have to take on all these new IMF loans at high interest and what have you, the American imperial game. And Yanukovych said, geez, I feel like a bride who just showed up at her wedding to be greeted with a prenuptial agreement. And now I'm not really, you know, that turned on anymore and I want to go home. Right. And so that was what he did. He refused to sign the agreement and go. In fact, the Russians were saying, we don't care if you sign an agreement with the EU, but you can have a deal with us, too. And by the way, we'll make very generous loans and gifts and donations of billions of dollars to you without a bunch of heavy strings attached. And so he went with them. And the Americans essentially, you might suspect, I have no evidence of this, but you could even suspect that they did that deliberately. In fact, I think I talked to somebody on my show about this, about the idea that they actually deliberately presented him with a, 
a deal that he could not possibly accept in order to foment the crisis, that it'd be better to have a crisis. Although I'm really not sure about that. I'd have to go back. But in any case, that was what happened was he went, he refused to accept the deal. And then the Western right-wing nationalist faction in the country uh, went out and started protesting. They, you know, wanted rid of him and wanted to be closer to the EU. And certainly if not, you know, if they weren't all in agreement about relations with the European Union, they certainly were in agreement that they did not want this new deal with the Russians and to be under further Russian dominance, economically speaking. So this was a big part of why the forces in the West were determined then to overthrow the government. And this is all the groups backed by the U.S. and the West. So in the East, though, they had a lot to lose because in the East is the industrial base of the country as built by the Soviet Union back then. So as you could understand, it's very old and decrepit and obsolete industry and can in no way compete with the European Union. So they have essentially been protected in their backwards economic ways there in the East. It's, you know, it's a poor region Um, and they've been you know, protected from this kind of competition. Now, if they had this, you know, big new deal with the Europeans, they have a lot to lose because all of their industry is going to go out of business, unable to compete with manufacturers in the West. And so that was why they had, you know, a vested interest in maintaining the old order for themselves. How does, do these groups, these, uh, these nationalist groups in Ukraine, how do they tie into these, these neo-Nazi groups and, and are they being like directly supported by the U.S.? Yeah. So um, Victoria Newland is, uh, well, first of all, just uh, for your notes or what have you, there's a great little summary of a lot of this by Dan Sanchez, uh, currently at FEE, uh, the Foundation for Economic Education. But he wrote this thing for antiwar.com back in 2014, or maybe it was 2015, um, called Why Ron Paul is Right About Ukraine. And he goes through, you know, explaining all of this stuff and, and has a lot of links. Yeah, I can link to that in the show notes for the show. Yeah, great. So it it really is good. So um, the thing of it is in there, you'll see this embedded video of Victoria Newland, who at that time, well, first of all, she's Robert Kagan's wife, Robert Kagan, who's one of the most powerful and influential neoconservative intellectuals who wrote toward a neo-Reaganite foreign policy with Bill Kristol back in 1996, was one of the major ringleaders of the Project for New American Century and pushing us into the Iraq War. His brother Fred and his wife Kimberly uh, are major ringleaders in the Afghan, or the Iraq War II surge of 2007, as well as the Afghan surge of 2010 through 12. Kimberly runs the Institute for the Study of War in D.C. And these are extremely well-connected, extremely powerful neocons. So Newland, Kagan's wife, uh, Robert Kagan's wife, was the assistant secretary of state for European affairs, which is essentially the ambassador to the European Union. And she was on video from December, just a month and a half or so, six weeks before the coup. Um, She is um, on video giving a speech which there's a big Chevron logo in the background and everything is sponsored by all our corporate sponsors. And she talks about how America has sunk $5 billion into, as she puts it, building civil society and democracy in Ukraine. But of course, democracy just means groups that favor Western interests and Western policy. Of course. And so these then were the groups and the journalism has been done in detail 
where these were the groups that America was donating to that were then supporting the maiden revolution and keeping these people, you know, warm and fed and all of this and, and out there in the streets through the winter there. And because uh, it started in November. And so then Newland herself and John McCain went to the maiden. That's like their Tahrir Square, right? Their big public square um, out in front of all the government buildings. And um, Victoria Newland and John McCain went there and met with them and passed out sandwiches and cookies. Uh, famously, <laughs> Newland did. And then they got up on the stage with these guys who were a bunch of Nazis. Andre Perubi who was from the, uh, I forget if he was from the right sector, the social nationalists. And I want to be clear, when you say Nazis, you don't mean it. I mean, we hear the word Nazi tossed around politically now to describe anyone, you know, to the right of Bernie Sanders. We're talking about literal Nazis here, correct? Yeah. I mean, they're the proud descendants of those who fought in the Galatian SS for Himmler and, you know, for the, in the, in the Gestapo for, and participated in the Holocaust against Jews and Poles and massive numbers in world war two right and, as, as and, actual a nazi as you can get in 20, 2019 yeah exactly they're, they're direct descendants and you know the their tiki torch parades are a hell of a lot more menacing sight <laughs> than the ones you, you ever seen here in the united states or at least in many generations here you check out one of those parades you'll be begging to, to see chris cantwell you know marching with a tiki torch again <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah exactly he'd be a relief so you'll say i miss those guys those guys seemed okay yeah. Hey, he's an FBI informant. He can't go too far. <laughs> the thing of it is that, uh, yeah, you have this group, the right sector, and then you have uh, the social nationalist parties, FOBODA. Is, they're called not the national socialists, mind you, but the social nationalists. Well, that's good. So we're, they're not <laughs> they're trying to mix it up a little bit, I guess. Yeah. And they're proud Hitler lovers. Yeah. I mean, they, they proudly denounce Jews and all you know, Jewish power and whatever Jewish conspiracies they're about. And, um, and you know, uh, uh, Andre Perubi, who is the current Speaker of the House of Representatives over there, is, you know, one of these Nazis from the right sector. And, um, and then there's uh, Tanny Bach, who is from the Social Nationalist Party, and all these guys anyway. And you could see the pictures of them. Um, as uh, John McCain and Victoria Newland are over there meeting with them and encouraging them and supporting them and, you know, essentially promising American help for the revolution. And then what happened was, you know, what, two weeks, I guess, before the coup, the Russians, presumably the Russians, intercepted a phone call and leaked it on, and just posted it on YouTube. And it's Victoria Newland again, essentially the American ambassador to the EU. And she's on the phone with Greg Pyatt, who was the American ambassador to NATO. And if you'd like, I could play about two minutes of this. The whole thing is about five minutes, but I have about one or two minutes that I could play for you if you'd like to hear it. Sure. So take a listen to a little bit of this. It's basically the Russians catch them red-handed plotting the coup two weeks before it happens. And then they went ahead and did it anyway. The uh, Klitschko piece is obviously the complicated electron here, um, especially the announcement of him as deputy prime minister. And, and you've seen some of my notes on the troubles in the marriage right now. So we're trying to get a read really fast on where he is on this stuff. But I think your argument to him, which you'll need to make, I think that's the next phone call we want to set up, is exactly the one you made to, to Yachts. And I, I'm glad you sort of put him on the spot on where he fits in this scenario. 
and I'm very glad he said what he said in response. I think Yats is the guy who's got the economic experience, the governing experience. He's, he's the guy, you know, what he needs is Cleach and Tani Book on the outside. He needs to be talking to them four times a week, you know. I, I, I just think Cleach going in, he's going to be at that level working for Yats and Yuk, It's just not going to work. Yeah, no, it, I, think that's, you know? I think that's right. Okay. Good. Well, do you want us to try to set up a call with him Is the next step? I can't remember if I told you this or if I only told Washington this, that when I talked to Jeff Feltman this morning, he had a new name for the UN guy, Robert Seri. Did I write yeah. you that this morning? Yeah, okay. I saw that. He, he's now gotten both Seri and Ban Ki-moon to agree that Seri could come in Monday or Tuesday. Okay. So that would be great, I think, to help glue this thing and have the UN help glue it and, you know, the EU. No, exactly. And I think we've got to do something to make it stick together because you can be pretty sure that if it does if it does start to gain altitude, the Russians will be working behind the scenes to try to torpedo it. So on that piece, Jeff, uh, when I wrote the note, uh, Sullivan's come back to me, uh, VFR, saying you need Biden. And I said probably tomorrow for an attaboy and to get the deets to stick. So okay. Biden's willing. Okay, great. All right. Thanks. So there you have it. I mean, they're they're plotting the the whole thing. And you can see where she says, F the EU. This got all the coverage. Oh, no. A diplomat used undiplomatic language on a private phone call. And she said the big F-bomb. And this got all the coverage. And that's the scandal somehow. Not not what they're actually saying. So the point was missed. Why was she mad at the EU? What she's complaining about is they're not doing the coup fast enough. She wants them to put this thing together. And they're dragging ass, as us Texas roofers used to say back (laughs) when I was a roofer. Um, And so um, she's saying, well, forget them. We'll get uh, we have this guy, Bob Sari, who's going to come in and he's going to do it. And we're going to have the U.N. help us. And I've been talking with Joe Biden in the vice president's office. And we're going to glue this thing together and we're going to midwife this thing. And we're going to get it all done before the Russians can shoot it down. And then for added context here. The editor of Foreign Affairs, Gideon Rose, Foreign Affairs is the journal of the Council on Foreign Relations, the most prestigious imperialist think tank in New York City. And, uh, and Gideon Rose is there, uh, the editor of Foreign Affairs. And he went on the old Colbert show when he was still in character kind of thing back on the Comedy Channel um, right then at the time. And I'm not even sure why they did this, but he went on there basically to slam dunk and to say... Um, you know, to, to gloat and to say, right now, what we're doing, Stephen, is we're stealing Ukraine away from Vladimir Putin's Russia. We have him all distracted with the shiny objects of the sport medals at the Sochi Olympics. And while he's distracted, we're running away with his girlfriend. <laughs> and we're taking away, you know, Robin to his Batman. We're breaking up that relationship. That was the way that they put it. That America is now in the midst of getting away with blue bloody murder. And we think that if we can get it done fast enough, where it's just essentially a fait accompli before the Russians can react, that we'll just get away with it and it'll be great. Except that's not what happens, right? Instead, what happens is Putin says, all right, that's it. And he calls his Marines out and his Navy frogmen out from their, from their Sevastopol base and he seizes the Crimean Peninsula. And then also, it's, this is really important too, that when um, 
in that um in that clip newland says you know we don't want klitschko he's the boxer and he's trying to kind of elbow his way in here but he's not ready yet and so we want to keep him on the outside for public relations concerns here yats is the guy that will that's arseny yatsinuk who was the guy who became the prime minister after the coup just two weeks later he was the guy yats is the guy and there he is he becomes the prime minister and then with the help of tanny bach who again was one of the founders of the Social Nationalist Party. And the first thing they did was try to, you know, de-recognize Russia as a legitimate second language. And they sent these Nazi militias east to attack ethnic Russians in the Donbass region, that is Donetsk and Luhansk in eastern Ukraine. Well, they pulled the maiden thing. They, their protesters went out and seized the government buildings and said, we don't recognize the new coup d'etat government that's overthrown our elected president that we favored. And so we don't recognize the new coup d'etat junta in Kiev. And so screw you guys. Well, so Kiev immediately sent Nazi militias to attack and kill them. And I just want to reemphasize again that we are talking about literal Nazis, you know. The- yeah, the Azov Battalion the, and right sector, you know, with their proud Nazi regalia, their Nazi symbols, their Nazi SS symbolism. lightning bolts. I even read that this group, this Azaz group, has these uh, like children's training camps for children that are basically training them to be new you know, neo-Nazi soldiers for these militias, these right-wing militias. Well, I don't know how young the recruits get. I might have missed that particular article. But yes, they are you know, proud Hitler-loving ethnic cleansers. I mean, that is their whole thing. And so then the Russians were accused in 2014 and 2015. I mean, it was almost like Donald Trump collusion hoax level garbage where they said over and over and over again, the Russians have invaded Ukraine. The Russians are invading Ukraine. New York Times headline, Russia rolls into Ukraine. Yeah, I remember. Never happened. Never happened. Now, they sent special operations forces, deniable special operations guys, to help back the resistance there. But they never invaded. They never sent infantry and armored divisions across. Never happened. And while they proceeded, and you could cast doubt on this if you wanted. I don't care. I think it's legit, essentially legit. But they held a referendum in Crimea where 80-something percent of people voted to join the Russian Federation to essentially ratify the decision that had already been made for them, admittedly. But, you know, German pollsters later came and said that those were legitimate numbers, that the people of Crimea, by huge, super-duper majorities, uh, voted to go with the Russians. Well, guess what? In eastern Ukraine, in Donetsk and Luhansk, they held referendums where they said, we want to join Russia. And, hey, Vladimir Putin, please absorb us into the Russian Federation. And Putin told them no. So here's this guy who supposedly is hell-bent on invading and dominating and recreating, if not the Soviet Union, at least the Tsar's old empire in Eastern Europe. And he, they're handing it to him on a silver platter. They're begging for him to come and help them. And he helps them, but does not. I mean, and after all, if he had said this is now a Russian border, the war would have been over, right? Kiev is not really going to attack the Russian Federation. Did he say no just to sort of, I, I don't know, portray that you know they are not really trying to absorb all of Ukraine or part of Ukraine and just to maintain and to not increase tensions? I mean, why, why did Putin deny them when they cast that vote? Yeah, I mean, well, I don't think I think because essentially absorbing that population is just absorbing 
a budgetary nightmare, right? Now he's got to rebuild the place. Now everybody there who's on welfare is now on his welfare and, you know, whatever kind of uh, economic damage it would cause to the Russian Federation to bring them in. Like if we absorb Puerto Rico. <laughs> yeah, you I'm, know. I'm kind of joking, but. No, I mean, that that may be a good comparison. I mean, I don't, I think that if Putin wanted to reabsorb or absorb the eastern uh, region of Ukraine in 2015 or 14 or 15, I guess he could have. I mean, I really don't, I don't have any reason to think that he refrained from doing that as like a temporary stopgap measure to placate the West or anything like that. I think he was willing, he had shown with Crimea, he was willing to do whatever he thought was in Russia's national interest at that point. And the days of drunken Boris Yeltsin getting pushed around were over and et cetera like that. So I, you know, I think he just had his own reasons for not doing it, but quite contrary to the narrative that this guy is, you know, simply a dictator and who is hell bent on one day invading and reconquering all of Eastern Europe when he's betrayed no such uh, interest. In fact, there's a WikiLeaks, um, a State Department document from, um, I'm going to say 2009, so early Obama years, first Obama year. Um, it could have been 2010. But anyway, so the uh, ambassador to Russia has a meeting with Sergei Lavrov, the foreign minister. And then he writes this State Department report back, and it's titled, Nyet Means Nyet. And it says, so I just had a meeting with Sergei Lavrov, and he told me to tell you that we can forget, underline and believe it, forget bringing Ukraine into NATO. And the Russians say that if we really do try to bring Ukraine into NATO, they will invade. They say they can be in Kiev in two weeks. In fact, this was later. Putin said, you know, I can be in Kiev in two weeks if I want to be. And the point was that we are pushing our luck way too far and this is the line and they have drawn and they're really serious and now we should back off. And just imagine if the shoe was on the other foot, Mark, for a minute here. And the Americans, Ronald Reagan had spent us in a bankruptcy and the, the American empire had collapsed before the Soviet won. And then the Soviets had expanded all into the Caribbean, all into Latin America. And then they overthrew the government of Canada and they used Nazis to do it. And then all the Frenchmen in Quebec who said, forget this, man, we're not going along with this because we're proud, independent Quebecers and we're going to fight. Um, and then the Russians backed Nazis to kill all them Frenchmen until they gave up. What do you think the United States of America would do in that situation? Fairly, fairly up in arms. That's right. Yeah, we would nuke Moscow. We would start a war that could essentially kill all of humanity rather than let that happen. That is the real answer. That's what Washington, D.C. would do. They would commit omnicide before they let America be taken advantage of in that way. That's the position we're putting the Russians in. And then they squeak and we go, oh, when look, Russian aggression attacked our democracy and a bunch of garbage. Scott, one more thing I want to tie this into is uh, the current situation with Trump and specifically, I, I don't know how much the, this relationship with uh, you know the Ukrainian government and the neo-Nazis has changed under Trump, if at all. I'm curious also, though, I don't know that much about it, but I know that um, the Paul Manafort uh, situation, the criminal situation that he is involved with is somewhat related to the situation with Ukraine. Can, can you go into that at all? Well, first of all, Trump's policy is worse because even though Obama backed this coup, isn't that ironic? Obama backed 
essentially the Libyan Ku Klux Klan coming to power. These the Arab forces who did this massive ethnic and sectarian cleansing campaign against blacks in Libya. Um, and then turn around and start supporting literal Hitler loving Nazis in Ukraine. The first black president of the United States of America, George Bush, can't claim to accomplish those things. You know, it's just incredible. But then at least he only sent trucks and aid and training, which is really bad already. But Donald Trump has sent weapons to Ukraine. And part of this, I think, is because of all this bogus pressure against him. Uh, claiming that he's a Russian puppet and that he has to prove that he's not. And so it's funny, right? Because here he's even getting out of the intermediate range nuclear missiles treaty with the Russians and the, the liberals aren't happy. <laughs> they're not, they're not saying, okay, he proved he's not a Russian agent yet. We, we want to see him scrap every last nuclear treaty before we'll accept that this guy is not an agent of Vladimir Putin. It's such a strange world we live in now where, the Democrats are in a furor over not being. I mean, it also it almost seems like they wouldn't be happy unless Trump did nuke Russia to prove that he's you know yeah. not in collusion or what have you. And even then, they wouldn't, right? They would just say, "See, just that just that proves that he's that. trying to make up. He's compensating for the fact of what a Russian agent he is." Um, <laughs> and so he has sent arms to these guys. And now, get this, and you could look this up. It's one of those things that sounds too crazy to be true, but it's right there in the New York Times. You can read it step by step as it happened. John Conyers, the now disgraced and resigned uh, longtime member of the House of Representatives from the Liberal and Black Caucus in the House, had sponsored a bill banning a, a resolution, I guess, banning any American aid to Nazis in Ukraine. And it passed because everybody said, even in Congress, they were like, that sounds reasonable. <laughs> you know, they didn't know much about it, I guess. But then, they rescinded that. Now, you would think that they would just hush it up and keep it secret and do it anyway. But they literally introduced another resolution to rescind that resolution. To, to publicly state, no, we can support Nazis if we, if we so choose to do so. Now we can arm and train Nazis. It is now legalized again. And that's exactly what the Trump government is doing over there. And then so you mentioned Manafort. Manafort. You could ask, I'm not, I'm not asserting this. I have no information to this, but I'm just saying it's, it occurs to me that he may very well have been working for the CIA at the time that he was advising the Yanukovych government in Kiev because he was advising Yanukovych to sign the deal with the EU. He was advising Yanukovych to lean west and to do the deal in the fall of 2013. So... You know, I don't know when when Manafort ultimately is indicted, who knows what we're going to find out. But so far, this whole Russiagate thing, um, and I guess I could add Roger Stone in there. When these two guys are indicted, I guess we'll see But and, or when the final report comes out. But thus far, it's just like the case against Saddam Hussein in Iraq in 2002 and 2003. It's 100 assertions and none of them amount to anything. It's all just vaporware. A hundred times zero is zero. And this whole thing is a fraud. And, and they better prove it beyond a shadow of a doubt after, you know, more than two years of this now, essentially. It's crazy. Well, you can tell when something is, uh, when something is not quite on the up and up, when the reasons for it are 
a huge, humongous list because there's no actual one point that points to, you know, if, if, if this whole collusion thing was com- completely legitimate, there would be one piece of strong evidence that would be really all they would need to point to to prove it. Instead, there's a list of 150 things, any of which, if you go down the rabbit hole, are, are you know, either innocuous or not at all what, what the headline says they are. So I think, to me, that's, that's a real red flag that they're really grasping at straws to try to make this the issue of the day. Yep. And and with each new little factoid that comes out, they all jump all over it and pretend it's the biggest thing in the world. And then it's always retracted or played down or turns out it doesn't really mean what we thought it did. And dirt, 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 time after time. And again, and think about this. I mean, in fact, I said two years. It's actually been three years almost since the beginning of the FBI looking into this and looking into people on Trump's campaign and that kind of thing. You would think. And it's certainly by the summer of 2016, um, this thing was in full gear. And yet here we are in the beginning of 2019. If the president was compromised by the Russians, wouldn't it be some kind of emergency to make that case and prove that case and remove this man from power? How is Robert Mueller, if this is true at all, if this amounts to anything at all, How isn't he in complete dereliction going after these low level? Oh, Paul Manafort's guy, you know, admits to some tax fraud and is willing to accuse Manafort of some things that have nothing to do with this and everything to do with, you know, IRS liabilities from decades past and this kind of garbage. Then it sounds to me like Robert Mueller must be a Russian agent, too. And all he's doing is providing cover for Donald Trump. By the logic used against Trump, Mueller is the ultimate Russian agent because if he's sitting on the evidence that shows that our president, our actual elected president, has been working for Russia this whole time and he's just taking his time uh, and, you know, diddling around with Manafort and Roger Stone, then really he's the one that's distracting us from from the big problem. That's the way I see it. And you know what? I can say this as a former conspiracy nut myself, New World Order guy in the 1990s and all that one world government and like John Birchie type conspiracy kookery. And the thing is not to pick on conspiracy kooks because they're very valuable and it's important that people speculate and use their imagination and try to figure out what the hell is really going on around here. But there's such a thing as jumping to conclusions. And there's such a thing that the real hallmark of conspiracism essentially is that it, it, all the arguments have to be self-referencing. You have to start with your conclusion. If it's true that Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin have the secret intelligence relationship and he's a Russian agent and he's selling out all our interests from Russia for Russia and all of these things, then when each one of these little tidbits come out, then they help you to build that case. Wow, it sure looks like, look at all these connections and look at all these different times that Americans tied to Trump met with Russians tied to other Russians tied to intelligence, whatever. But if you don't start out with the conclusion and you just take any one of these arguments on their face one at a time, they don't really add up to anything at all. Now, this is just like with the case against Iraq in 2002 or 2003 is, okay, it's true. You may have debunked the mobile biological weapons labs and the UAVs that can fly across the Atlantic Ocean and spray the eastern seaboard with germs. And you may have debunked an Iraqi Manhattan project that couldn't possibly exist. And uh, you may have debunked the aluminum tubes, which obviously are for Katusha rockets, as the UN has found, and not centrifuges. And you may have debunked, um, you know, Zarqawi being an agent of Osama or Saddam when he's safe up in Kurdistan and Saddam's trying to kill him. Uh, 
But you know what? Still, when you add them all up, you can't deny that Saddam is a big national security threat. But no, when you add them all up, you get nothing. When you add them all up, America picked this fight with Russia. When you add them all up, Saddam Hussein was writing a romance novel and had no ties, no chemical weapons, no ties to Osama bin Laden other than an APB out for him. Wait, was he literally? I've never heard that. Was Saddam literally writing a romance novel? He was literally writing a romance novel. <laughs> I would love nothing more than to somehow you know, get that manuscript released, yeah. but that might have been and, destroyed in the bombs. And by the way, too, this was unbelievable to 150 million Americans at the time, Mark, but they were lying and they knew it. They had the head of Iraqi intelligence. Habush and the head of the foreign ministry, um, uh, Naji Sabri. And both of these guys were turned by the CIA. They told everything from the very highest level. We had nothing, nothing. The CIA told George Bush the week of the 9-11 attack. They went back and reviewed it. And I talked to Michael Scheuer, the CIA officer who oversaw the review. They went back over everything they had and they reported to George Bush that Saddam Hussein does not have an alliance with Osama bin Laden. They knew that in September of 2001 and they were lying and they knew they were lying and they were trying to scare your auntie to death to get her to let them to do murder. They were lying. And that kind of thing, you think, well, they wouldn't do that again, though. The CIA wouldn't lie to me about Russia now just because they lied to me about Iraq then, but except they lied about Gaddafi in Libya. They lied, as I said, they lied about Slobodan Milosevic in Kosovo in 99. They lied about Gaddafi in, in 2011. They lied about Bashar al-Assad from 2011 through today in Syria. It's like an abusive boyfriend or, or what have you. It, it was always just that one time, except it's been 20, 30 times or really the entire modern history of, of the U.S. government. That's right. Uh, Scott, it's it's always a fun rabbit hole to go down. I know we can go in a million different directions. And I think if you have a little time, we might actually do that uh, in the bonus show in a minute. But I think that's going to wrap for the main show today. Of course, before I let you go, why don't you just tell everybody out there, give them a little roundup of where they can find all your stuff, where they can find your archive of um, excellent interviews over the years and uh, your current work as well uh, over at the Libertarian Institute. So, yeah, I got uh, 4,800-something interviews at scotthorton.org going back to 2003. Uh, sign up for the podcast feed and there. here I am thinking I'm cool for doing a few hundred. I mean, that's mind-blowing. Yeah, it's it's been a while. I can't figure out anything better to do. Um, I wrote a book, Fool's Errand. I'm writing another one now about the terror war, but I wrote Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan. And even though it has the word Afghanistan in the title, it's actually very interesting and good and everybody seems to really like it. And there's an audiobook version of it too, if you're interested in that. I'm the opinion editor at antiwar.com. So I pick out all the viewpoints for you to read there. And um, I'm on the radio in Los Angeles on Sunday mornings, KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, uh, 8.30 Sunday mornings. And um, I run the Libertarian Institute with the great Sheldon Richmond at libertarianinstitute.org. And we got a great and growing stable of writers over there and um, good podcast too. You guys are familiar with uh, Pete Raymond, AKA Mance Radar or Raider. Absolutely. He's actually a sponsor of today's episode. So there you go. Oh, there you go. So we run his, uh, his show and a, a couple other shows on there. So uh, go and check all that out. And, and by the way, for Will Grigg fans, we're putting out Will Griggs last book. will oh, be wow, coming great. out here That's great um, to hear. in a short amount of time. So, 
Um, lots of stuff going on over at the Libertarian Institute. Cool. Well, as always, anytime you've got a question about foreign policy, the guy to hit up is Scott Horton. And then that's why I did that when I had a question today. And now my audience knows a hell of a lot more about this history between Ukraine and Russia, the United States, the neo-Nazis, the whole thing. Maybe we'll dive into a few more topics in the bonus show. Scott, thank you so much for coming on the show. Keep up the great work. Keep on roaring. Sure. Thanks. Folks, you never knew how much information about Ukraine that you didn't know until now. Thanks so much to Scott Horton for coming on the show. It is always a blast to have Scott on because I know I can wind him up on any topic. Just let that puppy go. Always a fountain and wealth of knowledge. And the knowledge did not end there. For members of the Lions of Liberty Pride, our very, very valued supporters on Patreon, we went into several topics deeper on the Patreon show, on the bonus show. We talked about all sorts of topics from Syria to Saudi Arabia and the relationship with the United States as it pertains to the petrodollar. We went into some other interesting topics like education and why logic is no longer taught. Uh, We went into China's expansion in the South Sea. We went into the Israeli elections. All sorts of topics that you're only going to hear by just having one less beer, one less Starbucks this month, and chipping in five bucks for the great cause of liberty. Again, you can find that all over at patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty. And like I said, we have a very special Patreon-only Libertarians in Living Rooms drinking liquor coming towards the end of this week. That will be an Ask Me Anything. So if you want to get us a question for us to bat around about while we toss back our Liberty beverages, Again, head over to the Patreon, patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty. Folks, do not forget to check out my man Brian McWilliams this coming Wednesday on Electric Liberty Land. Will he be drunk? Will he be sober? Will he be sick? What names will he mispronounce? These are all questions that can only be answered by tuning in on Wednesday to Electric Liberty Land. And as always, check out John Odermatt's hard-hitting look at the broken criminal justice system, a show that continues to not only tear at my heartstrings, but to inspire me as I hear these incredible stories of people who have overcome injustice within the criminal justice system. So many great shows here for you on Lions of Liberty. We're pleased to have you here along the journey. And again, today's episode of Lions of Liberty has been brought to you by MathBot.com. The pen may be mightier than the sword, but code is even mightier than the pen. So learn how to build the tools that will bring prosperity and freedom to the world and learn how to code at mathbot.com. That's mathbot.com. Become mighty, my friends. And until next time, live long and live free.